As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. And welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Gabriel Marcotti. And we thank you for joining us on this Thursday. And I'm delighted because in the studio with us, wearing a delightfully pinstripe shirt, it's James Gearbrandt. And joining us down the line from someplace up north, wearing his uh, also stripy pajamas, it's Jonathan Northcroft. Hi, Gab. Hi, Gab. It's checks today, actually. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Get it right. You do strike me. Can I just ask you, Johnny? You strike me as somebody who, when he wakes up in the morning, until you have to physically go out, if you're just home doing some work or talking to us, you don't actually change into your into your, your day clothes. You stay in your pajamas, right? Until you have to get dressed to go out. How did you know? <laughs> That's, That's amazing. The cameras in the house are working quite well, aren't they? Yeah, either that or I'm uh, friends with several of your former housemates. Uh, <laughs> later on, we'll be trying to work out what Pochettino is thinking and what FIFA are thinking as the 48-team World Cup could be happening in under four years' time. But we start with arguably the game of the weekend at the Emirates on Saturday evening. Arsenal host unbeaten Liverpool. James, Unai Emery lost the first two games of the season against elite opposition in Chelsea and Manchester City. Um, How different is this Arsenal side now that Emery's had more time to impose his methods? I think it does look different now in in a number of kind of um, concrete ways. I mean, firstly, Lucas Torreira didn't start either of those first two matches of the season. And he's obviously come in now and I think, you know, established himself in, in, in the first choice 11. And I think, you know, he's, he's an important player and gives Arsenal a lot of balance. Uh, also in those first couple of games, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang was playing up front, started up front. And, and Alexandre Lacazette, I think, was on the bench or came on as a substitute. Um, and I think we expect that now to be different. It looks like Lacazette is now the first choice centre forward and Aubameyang is either going to be on the wing or maybe coming off the bench. I assume for a game of this magnitude he'll be he'll be starting on the wing, you would think. And certainly in the first match of the season, Meza Urzil played on the wing and, and he now it looks like Emery has now moved him into that number ten role, which I personally think is is where he's much, much more effective than in that sort of, you know, high wide and, and more sort of disciplined and he role. As well. Yeah, completely. <laughs> and and I think although Arsenal actually did play pretty well in uh, particularly in that match against Chelsea I think the the new configuration, it's one that works in terms certainly of Arsenal's kind of attacking combination play, as we've seen in those matches against Fulham and, and Leicester, where at times they were, you know, they were really quite superb going forward. I think clearly there are still a lot of question marks about this Arsenal team defensively, even though Torreira has made some difference. I don't think he's been a kind of panacea by any means. Yes, they've kept a few clean sheets recently, but if you actually look at those games with the exception of the Sporting Lisbon game, 
the games where they kept clean sheets, they did actually concede quite a lot of chances, and they were probably clean sheets kept through luck rather than really earned. So still vulnerable, I think, at the back. Johnny, on the back of what Gear just said about Aubameyang, he signs as a centre forward because they'd signed Lacazette six months earlier, and then decided he wasn't good enough or nobody seemed to like the poor guy anymore. And then now new manager and Aubameyang goes to the wing to accommodate Lacazette, which, by the way, is the wing is where he played earlier in his career as well, although he played mostly center forward at, at Borussia Dortmund. It strikes me that sort of center forward to wing in the modern game, and I don't think it used to be this way, is in some ways the most interchangeable position in the sense that we think of Premier League center forwards and, you know, barring like Glenn Murray or somebody, and maybe it was different when Glenn Murray was younger, um, we could see most center forwards could play on the wing and there's a certain type of winger certainly who could play up front. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, this is definitely the era of the front three and that front three is, is different to the, the old-fashioned front three which was which involved wingers. I mean, the, the, the wide players tend to be auxiliary strikers. Um, that's obviously how Dortmund played. I know, he, as you say, he played through the middle, but they interchanged there. Um, I think with Arsenal, it's interesting that what you're looking at in, I think, at the top of the game at the moment, and this is this is not my original idea, this is something Robert Hughes said to me when I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, but he, he said, basically, irrespective of what formation these teams are playing, the thing that really links... You know, Guardiola, Klopp, Pochettino, and now Arsenal. And he said, you know, he'd really noticed Arsenal joining the party on this. Chelsea as well, obviously. It's not about the formation. It's about the two elements of of, of pressing, but most importantly, of of speed in the attack. And he said you can could see the the difference in Arsenal's play, just just the speed of attack, quite direct, but quick attacks compared to the more deliberate style under, under Wenger. And I think that is really what benefits Lacazette, a player of his attributes. He wants, you know, he, he, he's like a Salah. He, he wants space to run into and he, want, he wants a pacey attack that he can exploit. And he's obviously got a link as well with, with Lacazette. It's just one of those chemistry things. You can, you can, you can see it. It's, not, it's pretty obvious that, that that helps as well. So I think those, those things combined are, are making him more productive and Lacazette as well. We, we, we've seen Arsenal score some tremendous team goals in fact we go back to I think there's at least two right that we we remember very clearly and I don't remember who they were again one was was against Leicester and the other one was Ramsey against Fulham yeah Ramsey against Fulham Gearbrand somebody told me you're you're writing about this I'll give the game away (laughs) it's the whole point we're here to promote your writing okay no sorry Gearbrand's definitely not writing on the subject so let's move on no, yeah, I want to promote, because I'm kind of excited. We were upstairs talking to our bosses, and they're like, you know, James had this great idea. So tell us about this, the fact that in England, see, people seem to be getting a greater appreciation for the team goal rather than the long-range strike. And, I mean, certainly one thing that struck me when, when I moved here was you flip on the TV, was how different sort of the, those goal-of-the-month competitions exist in every country. You know, in, in other countries, it would be intricate build-up or, you know, overhead kicks or something that was very difficult to do technically. Here in England, for a long time, most of the top ten seemed to be, you know, some Burke just leathering the ball, like, you know... Crash bang wallop. (laughs) Yes. Andros Townsend would have been, like, you know... So, is there a change? I mean, what are you talking about here? Well, I think what is definitely true is that long-range screamers are becoming less common. I actually wrote about that last season... 
they've sort of been, you know, goals, if you measure, you know, number of goals from 25 yards out or from 30 yards out, they've sort of been in gradual decline. Attempts as well or just the goals? I only did it for goals. It would be interesting to look up attempts. Um, as, <laughs> I'm, shaking, I'm shaking, shaking, shaking his head. I would have expected a little slap, bit more from slap, a varsity letterman like yourself. Slap, slap dash methodology. I had a theory this season that I think team goals are becoming slightly more common, although obviously, you know, stuff like that, a Batman goal against Leicester, that's never going to seem commonplace because that was a wonderful, wonderful goal. But I do think in general, as a genre, those kind of interconnected, intricate team goals are becoming more common. And indeed, having looked at the statistics, if you look at the average number of passes in a lead-up to the goal this season, that's at a, you know, its highest level since Opta started measuring for that particular statistic. It's something like 3.68, having sort of hovered between 3.1 and 3.2 for the past four seasons. As you might expect, if you look solely at the big six teams those figures go up quite significantly again. Kind of makes sense, right? You know, because as, you know, as in fact Johnny was just talking about then, we know that generally under the top coaches now, the top sides in the Premier League work an awful lot on system. You know, system is really king and, you know, that putting in that work on the training ground to have those real, you know, that real sense of synchrony in your attacking movements and, you know, those little triangles and the kind of interconnections between different players. And I think it's quite one of the things that has struck me about this Premier League season is the way that the top clubs have operated. You know, you look at, for example, you know, what Jurgen Klopp has done with Fabinho, you know, ordinarily a few seasons ago, you might have expected a player like that signed for that sort of fee to go straight into the team, but it's been quite notable and it's far from the only example. You know, Torreira, for example, didn't start... I think any of the first five games. There's definitely a trend towards, though, rather than plonking players straight in, getting them up to speed with the system and making sure mm. that they are adapted to that particular style of football and only easing them in very gradually when they kind of know how the system works. I definitely think you've got to look at defensive organisation as well because you just do not see players with time to wind up a big shot in the way they, they used to. They get closed down too quickly and, and, and teams tend to be back in shape pretty quickly. And if ever a player has got space on the edge of the box, it's usually on the counter-attack. And, and it's usually, as you say, James, a group counter-attack. So there's players to play in. There's, there's better passing options than than shooting. Well, let's talk about the defence then in particular. And obviously this game last season, Arsenal-Liverpool produced a 3 all draw the season before that. It was a 4-3 win to Liverpool in the end. Uh, Jonathan, Liverpool seemed to be a bit of a... Well, a different animal this season defensively, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'd, I'd say they're a different animal to Liverpool since two thousand and eight, nine, really, since peak Rafa. Um, I mean, in, in the time I've covered Liverpool, there are always sort of two problem positions: left back and, and, and goalkeeper. I mean, that, that that goes back to two thousand and one, really, when I when I started covering the club. Um, and then you know they 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 had great centre halves, but then didn't have great centre halves, and, and went through a difficult period there as well. Um, and and now it, it's all come together. You know, Allison's obviously made a huge difference. The great Andy Robertson can do no wrong in any Scots eyes. And then you've you, you've got a fantastic centre half partnership. And Joe Gomez, I just I, I I'm enjoying watching this kid so much at the moment. Because if ever someone has developed a, a, a sort of lightning speed and, and has sort of emerged as a real top-class player of the future, 
it's or in fact of the present it, it, it's him I mean he was getting his games at right back a year ago wasn't so comfortable there you know now injury free a little bit older playing in the centre with Van Dijk that, that helps him I mean he is he is emerging as, as one of the top central defenders in the country Liverpool are doing all this defensively and we've mentioned Fabinho without their sort of potentially their best defensive midfielder being in the team for most of the season now now that he's he's up to speed and, and starting to play, I think that aspect of Liverpool's game might get even better. So that's the defensive side. What about up front? There was panic that Mo Salah wasn't uh, at his best, but he's now got four goals in his last three games. Only Sergio Aguero has taken more shots this season than Salah in the Premier League. So by sheer law of averages, James, he's going to be scoring uh, his fair share of goals, isn't he? I think that's pretty much, I mean, yeah, I think that's pretty much nail on the head, to be honest. Um, and, and if you look at our, our old friend, expected goals, <laughs> I believe that, you know, Salah has actually been, he's been riding pretty high all season. He's been, you know, He's been getting shots off in good areas and getting himself on the end of, of good chances. So, as we all know, you know, players who kind of play in those forward positions go through sort of mini peaks and troughs. But I don't think it's really any. I don't think, I don't think there was any kind of real cause for concern about him at the start of this season when he wasn't scoring so much. And I think it's really surprising that he now seems to be scoring again. Hi, I'm Andrew McKenna from TalkSpot. We're out in Sri Lanka covering the England cricket tour. As well as exclusive live ball-by-ball coverage of the Test Series, TalkSport are also giving you a podcast. It's published daily, it's called Following On, and covers all the news and views around the tour. It's full of player interviews, reaction and analysis from TalkSport's team of experts, including Darren Goff, Jared Kimber and Matt Pryor. Oh yeah, and also some of me. We'll be rounding up each day of action from the test matches, plus the news from all the other days on tour. You can subscribe now by going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. Search for the Following On Cricket Podcast, subscribe now, and never miss a show. Every Thursday at thetimes.co.uk, our stats guru, Bill Edgar, provides 11 trivia teasers for you. And here's one for you on this podcast. In the championship at the weekend, Derby, Nottingham Forest and Middlesbrough each fielded a player who also played for them 15 years ago. Since then, all three players have appeared for England and played for one of the Premier League's big six clubs before returning to their first side. Who are they? Those clubs again, Derby, Nottingham Forest and Middlesbrough. Well, this is really good. good Stick around to the end of the podcast Mm. to find out the answer. Across North London, there is an air of uncertainty at Tottenham right now. The news last week that Tottenham Stadium move would be delayed until 2019 then led to the manager, Maurizio Pochettino, stating this was his worst feeling at Tottenham. Pochettino admitted he was disappointed about the stadium delay. His move probably not improved by a 1-0 home defeat to uh, City on Monday night. Uh, Jonathan, is there a sense that Pochettino and the hierarchy are, are slightly at odds? Yeah, I mean, the, the the mood music, as they say, is very different all of a sudden. Um, and I think the thing that's significant with Pochettino is that he is a guy that works on emotion and, and feel quite a lot. You, can, you see that in his management. You know, Brave New World is, is a very emotional book, um, very sort of touchy-feely, and, you know, I'm not being disparaging. It's, it's fascinating from, from that point of view, the depth which he uses um, – personal connection, feeling, emotion to, to manage his players. And, and of course, 
he talks in that book about the relationship with Daniel Levy and, and that it's clear that that for him has been an emotional uh, relationship. You know, he, he talks he talks about being in love with them at one point. Um, you know, they go white white water rafting in, in Argentina and all that kind of stuff. Um, so um, what I'm trying to say is it's not a normal, this isn't a normal manager and it's not a normal relationship he's had with Levy. Um, and given how sensitive things are for Tottenham at the moment, for Pochettino to, to, to come out early in the week and talk about it being his, his worst feeling. I mean, that's a real affront to his chairman and a real problem, I think, because it exposes, um, well, uh, it exposes a, a serious problem, a serious risk, potentially. Should I be mischievous, Johnny? And the project. Johnny, yeah, go on, Gav. Since I know you love being mischievous, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> put you up for this one. He says this earlier in the week, yeah? Uh-huh. Around the time that, you know, everybody except for Julian Lopetegui's dad who seems surprised, mm-hmm. knows that there's going to be a managerial vacancy mm-hmm. at Real Madrid, which for those who don't pay attention, there is because Lopetegui was uh, was sacked on uh, on Monday and they now have a Santi Solari in as an interim coach. Those things aren't related, are they, in the way that the Madrid press is making it seem? Well, they, feel, they, do, they did feel related, yeah. There has been one previous outburst, as it were, by or one previous comment by Pochettino on similar lines, and that was after the, the Cup semi-final last year, and that was also a time when the Real Madrid's job was possibly becoming vacant. So you, you know, you can maybe join the dots. That was also before he signed his big contract extension. Exactly, exactly. Um, and then the fact that, that Conte hasn't taken the job, the fact that they, they they're going with the interim, who happens to be Poch's mate. There's plenty there for the conspiracy theorists, isn't there? I mean, I mean, he can't leave until Spurs move into the new stadium. I just think anything like that's a complete no-no for the club. But once that eventually does happen, we might be in different terrain in the summer. So Spurs will move into the new stadium this year at some point. Mm-hmm. And then you think at that point Pochettino comes in play. But if that's the I, case, then... It wouldn't just be Real Madrid. You'd assume it would be Manchester United, yeah. right, as well? I do, I do. I mean, I hate... Uh, if I was a Spurs fan, I'd hate this kind of discussion. Cause it, it, well, you, you brought know, it up, man. No, I know, I know. I, I, I'm, not <laughs> trying to, I'm not trying to dislodge one of the... You know, I mean, my, one of my favourite managers from the, the club that he's at, but my understanding has always been that, that until Tottenham move in that stadium, they have to try and provide, uh, you know, the stability. They have to provide the team that's there... Between Harry Kane, Dele Alli, Eriksen, Pochettino, all the stars have to be there. It's just a no-no. You know, the, Levy couldn't countenance any of them leaving, and they have enough loyalty to the project that they wouldn't make big waves and, and, and try and leave because it's so important to the club. But once that happens, Spurs are in different territory, I think. And and you mentioned United and 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 there's Real as well and other, and other suitors. There has always been a sense among clubs looking at Pochettino that next season, next summer is the one to to try and get him. So, I think he will be in play in the summer. It doesn't mean he's going to leave. We'll have to see where Spurs are, but I think it's a pretty uncomfortable period now between now and the end of the season for them. I think it's a bit like when Wenger. I mean, Wenger used to spend nine months, didn't he, being subject to speculation? I think we might be in that with, with Pochettino and Spurs. I want to talk, just throw something onto that made me angry last oh. Monday. Oh, dear. Well, Tottenham play Manchester City at Wembley. Right? Manchester City, who are the defending champions, as we know. 
Last season, there were 68,000 present. This season, there were 58,000. I think you've got two different elements going on here. One, which we reported on yesterday, is that the game was played on this horrible pitch because there was an NFL game 24 hours earlier. And on top of that, the pitch wasn't just horrible to play on. Although I think it wasn't as bad as it looked, but it looked horrendous because all the NFL markings were still on there to the point that we're reporting that, that Spurs might be fined because of this. And it just looked so incredibly cheap and hideous. It was on, a great advert for the Premier League, wasn't it? It was a great advert. <laughs> yeah, it was a great advert for the NFL. Yeah. Too. But between those two things, and again, I want to make this very clear before Man City fans get on my back. Man City sold out their allocation. This is not something where you can go and blame Manchester City for this. I don't know to what degree you can blame Spurs. Some Spurs fans were told, you know, made it a point. It had to do with the fact that they were promised they were going to be in the new stadium and they got refunds and the prices at Wembley and whatever, and it's a big place, even with the reduced capacity. And and also the fixture had been moved several times and blah, blah, blah. But Kierbrandt, this was hideous. And it was hideous from the perspective of the Premier League, who I think are the global gold standard in how to package games and make them look good on television. And this was just horrendous. Shouldn't heads roll over this? Shouldn't somebody be held to account at the Premier League? I, I completely agree with you. I, I think when people, you know, that sort of long-standing sort of like semi-sort of joke, you know, Premier League, best league in the world, is it or isn't it? But I think one thing that, the, in all seriousness, the Premier League does do very well and that sometimes isn't talked about in that debate is, as you say, the kind of the production values in inverted commas of the league. Somebody on on Twitter a while ago did a sort of side-by-side screen grab of what a Premier League match looks like on television versus, I think, a Serie A match. And it is quite striking, you know, the way in which, you know, I'm not being, you know, it's been quite serious here, the grass is greener in the Premier League, the shirt colours are more sort of vibrant and stand out a bit better. And I think those kind of production values are really, really important. And as, as you say, to have a match, you know, a big match a really really big match involving the as you said defending champions against a team that you know were assumed to be among their closest competitors for the title you know played out on just an awful looking pitch with the markings of another sports league clearly visible it was bizarre and very unsatisfactory what's your take johnny because this is what's weird um precisely because you said about the grass being greener I know in some leagues, like in some Serie A stadiums, they actually they paint the grass green. Couldn't they have done this here? Isn't there something that these people could have done? I'm not an expert on groundskeeping. Goodness me, it was just, just horrible. Who's responsible? Well, Name and shame. Well, it wasn't, wasn't that a story that, that they, they deliberately didn't take that option because the grass and the turf are so damaged already that they felt doing anything chemical or, or any treatment of the grass would actually you know, make make things worse. I think it's in such a sort of parlous state that they they just wanted to leave leave what they had, which is why it looked so bad. Um but I I, I agree with James. I mean in, in an age where teams can can be fined for um, you know, infringing brand values by having their own sponsor board. I mean, what an infringement of the Premier League's brand that that, that game was. Well the good news is Tottenham are away from home this weekend. They're at Wolves on Saturday night and Wolves performing really well in the Premier League and they performed particularly well against both the Manchester clubs, Jonathan. 
Yeah, um, I, I think um, I think Wolves would be quite difficult for Spurs because they're, they're so good in their organisation, hard to play against, and and you know Spurs have, have, have struggled a little bit for creativity. I think this year, um, obviously that, that that's linked with Ericsson not having um, a full run of fitness and, and and form, but Spurs have looked to be more of a kind of almost playing more of a power game at the moment, a physical game, and I don't think Wolves will be unduly worried by that. What is a bonus for, for Spurs is that Wolves just find it so difficult to to score. I think they will struggle against that Spurs defence, but it could be a fairly kind of grim encounter, that one. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League. It's just £8 for an eight-week trial. This week on The Ruck Podcast, former Wales and British and Irish Lions captain and new Times and Sunday Times columnist Sam Warburton speaks to Stephen Jones about, amongst other issues, fame. I'll never forget when I was going to Denmark, actually. I was a 10-year-old boy and um, I said to my dad, I was flying over, my uncle lives over there, I was flying, I was flying over and I said to my dad, uh, obviously the Tottenham link now, so people know, I said, oh, do you reckon... Do you reckon we see Alan Nielsen when we go to Denmark? And Alan Nielsen that year scored the winning header in the Carling Cup final and Tottenham won the League Cup. We went out to Denmark one month later. And we were on the plane, I remember, and my dad said, oh, Sam, that's like saying, are you going to go to England and see Teddy Sheringham? <laughs> I mean, it's just like, no offence, it's not going to happen. And then we were in Tivoli Garden, which is in Copenhagen. It's just like a theme park in the city centre. And we were walking around. And I took my dad's shirt. I went, Dad, look, it's... Uh, it's Alan Nielsen and he had a look and he was jeepers like couldn't believe it it was Alan Nielsen I went over had a signature and he was brilliant had a picture of us signed it I never forgot that and um, I always think Great you story. know I could have been that Alan Nielsen you know so whenever somebody comes up to you always give them time find the Rock Rugby podcast from the Times on iTunes Spotify and Acast now, 18 months ago, FIFA announced their plans for a 48-team World Cup as of 2026. But this week, the president, Gianni Infantino, announced that there could be 48 teams at the next World Cup. That's in Qatar in 2022. Gab, what is going on? Well, he's actually said all along that it was going to be 48 teams in 2026. But maybe if they could work it out, it would be 48 teams in 2022. This plays into something else, which is obviously Qatar is is a tiny, tiny country. So the idea is they can't host 48 teams on their own, or it would be really, really difficult. I suppose they could build more grounds that nobody's going to use. But So the question then 
will, will become one of a, of a joint World Cup, which I'm told Qatar, my understanding is, and they'll deny it today, but they were open to sharing some of it with their neighbors, but that was before the relationships with their neighbors got really, really nasty. You might have heard about, uh, especially Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. and uh, the United Arab Emirates. There's been a blockade, so they have issues importing certain foodstuffs. And also there's all the whole fiasco with be out sport, where basically they take the be in sport signal in Saudi and put a different logo on it and effectively steal it. Um, and there are court cases going on about this. So relationships are really bad. And I think Infantino would still like to have a 48-team World Cup, and there's different reasons for this. Um, one, quite obviously, is that he's up for re-election, and if they have 48 teams of the World Cup in 2022, then that means people who wouldn't otherwise be going get to the World Cup sooner. But I think it's going to be really, really difficult for him to go and pull this off, mm. just simply for the political reasons around there. I mean, the countries near there who like, who get along with Qatar, you're talking, you know, Iran, you know, uh, where there's other issues, uh, possibly possibly Kuwait, if they can swing them around, but mm. then you don't want to upset Saudi. So it's really complicated. Very complicated. So uh, as you say, politics and, and infrastructure aside, James, is it a good thing that we're going to have a 48-team World Cup and will it dilute the quality of the tournament as well? I mean, I think it's important not to be sort of too kind of insular and reactionary about it, I think. There are some good things about having more teams in the World Cup, but obviously, you know, it gives more countries kind of a real shot at qualifying and sort of incentivizes them in that way. Obviously, you know, football is a global game. It's obviously, you know, it's not purely the preserve of of Europe and South America. There are, I think, positives to it. Having said that, I do think from the point of view of the tournament itself, particularly as a spectacle, I do think there are a lot of negatives. And I think what you said about the dilution of the quality of the tournament, it's almost inevitable if you have that many teams. I think at the moment with the 32-team format we currently have, for me, I think that strikes a pretty sort of nice balance between having a sort of nice geographical spread and, you know, sort of involving all the confederations and not having too many really weak teams. I think... Even at the last World Cup, you saw that the sort of the weakest teams from the weakest confederations, the likes of Saudi Arabia from the Asian Federation or Panama from the CONCACAF Federation, were really quite, they were really, really quite poor. But at the moment, with only 32 teams, you're not kind of, you're not reaching down too deep into those weaker confederations. With the proposed 48 team format, you really are, because at the moment you currently have four or five Asian teams under the new format you would have eight which means three teams eight and a half which is three teams that are weaker than well who knows but you know three teams that are theoretically weaker than Saudi Arabia you add two teams from CONCACAF and there are another whole heap of kind of potential problems to do with the whole the format of the tournament because what you currently have is a very very nice neat symmetrical format with 32 teams eight groups of four under this 48-team format, you're going to have a much kind of weirder, more asymmetrical format, which is 16 groups of three, which means you have all sorts of weird imbalances, like, you know, for example, you it sets you up... dead rubbers. Dead mm. rubbers. It sets up you know, that situation where you might have matches where two teams in the final group match could know the result that would allow them both to qualify for the knockout stages. 
you have a situation where potentially teams are playing in the first knockout round and one team has, I think, had, you know, eight days rest and one day team has only had four. I, I think the, f- the valid objection to it is the format issue because it's so different. You can make the point, look, in the end, who cares, right? Because in the end, the good teams are going to win their games and those are the ones who ultimately are going to get to the quarterfinals and that's all that people ultimately care about. Overall, I'm not against an expanded World Cup at all. I think the quality argument is is just the kind of thing that people people trot out, dilutes the quality. But if you look at it, you know, the World Cup, the, the game has changed since the 1970s, right? The, if you really care about quality and watch the Champions League, that's quality. National teams cannot match that quality because they simply don't have enough time together and it's just a bunch of guys thrown together, often with very basic tactical approaches because that's simply the best that you can do because you as a manager don't have time to work with them. This idea of, yes, Saudi Arabia were terrible at the World Cup, Panama were terrible at the World Cup. I'd say that those are outliers though because you don't normally get these massively lopsided results in World Cups. Just I think there's a bit of a sample size issue with, with that one. And the other thing, I mean, having been out there and I was at the England-Panama game, seeing what the Panama fans were like throughout the tournament, seeing how Panama lived that World Cup with their terrible team, um, the way they celebrated that goal against England. I was phenomenal for them. It really was. And then you ask yourself, well, what is the purpose of a World Cup? Is it to go and have some sort of distillation of the best teams, the best national teams in the world? Or is it to have, you know, an actual kind of festival or or jamboree, if you will, of, (laughs) of football where where more people get to participate and more people go and get a crack. You know, it's the same, it's a similar argument to the one we made with the Euros, right? We're like, oh, we're diluting the quality. Well, yeah, you are, but there's only seven, eight teams that are actually good. I don't know. Does it make a difference to our enjoyment of the World Cup? I mean, Natalie, if you were to watch the World Cup and you, 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 you flick on your television and you see Panama playing North Korea, are you going to be offended because you're like, oh my goodness, the quality here, it's so much worse. These guys can't control the ball. This is so much worse than watching Brentford. Does it spoil your enjoyment of the competition? No, not for me. No, I, I think yeah, I still enjoy watching any game that's on the on the telly that I can that I can see. Um, it might not be my first pick in terms of that day, but I might think, well, I'll watch that knowing that coming up later on, it's going to be Germany against... I don't know, Sweden or whoever it is, you know. They're all interesting games. And when it comes to the World Cup, you never know what's going to happen. And obviously, no one would have predicted what would have happened with Germany at the World Cup in the summer. So, I don't know. I mean, I think the weakest team in each group isn't going to play 50% of the matches. It'll play 66% of the matches in each group. You're going to have a lot more matches involving really weak teams. And at the moment, I think you have comparatively few in a World Cup. And I don't think you can just pretend that that isn't going to change the kind of product that you're offering. Did having the Republic of Ireland and Albania spoil your enjoyment of the Euros? I think not, or not North, particularly. Or, or better think, yet, Northern Ireland. And I'm sorry, we just mentioned Republic of Ireland because I thought they played terrible football. Northern Ireland were a team with far worse players who weirdly played, I thought, slightly better football. Mm. And it was still a good story, whatever. Yeah. Did you enjoy watching them? Would, would Northern Ireland get relegated from the championship or from League One if they played? I mean, I didn't mind the expanded Euros, but I think there's a balance to be struck. The expansion of the World Cup kind of throughout the World Cup's history has been done quite gradually. It's sort of mm-hmm. gone up from 16 teams, a few tournaments, 24 teams, a few tournaments, and then up to 32 teams. It's been quite gradual. 
this now is a huge jump between 32 teams and 48 teams. For me, I wouldn't have minded an expanded World Cup, but I would have preferred maybe a 40-team tournament and then you could have done something clever. You could have had like a pre-qualifying round, had two teams playing off against each other and gone into the normal kind of four groups of eight format. That's what I would have done. Hi there and welcome to The Sweeper, which is the Times' fantasy football tip service. I'm Charlie Scott and not joined by Paddy Von Bear today because he is fighting crime. A lot of people were stung by the big names in game week 10 uh, when Aiden Hazard didn't play for Chelsea, Andrew Robertson was stuck on the bench for Liverpool and Marco Arnautovic was out injured for West Ham. I wouldn't rush to sell any of those three this week. A lot of people have been selling Hazard and Arnautovic in particular, but Chelsea and West Ham have got great fixtures. Uh, I just wouldn't be doing anything rash. In a similar vein, Ross Barkley's had a great couple of game weeks for Chelsea, but he's going to be at risk of rotation in that midfield, and he's cheap and has picked up loads of points, but I would advise against it, to be honest. Some players who I think are going to have a good time this week are Roberto Pereira for Watford. He's he's looked brilliant so far this season. They've got Newcastle away in game week 11. Callum Wilson and Ryan Fraser are at it again for Bournemouth against Fulham in game week 10. They've got two games now where I think you should keep them and then perhaps move them out during the international game week. They've got United this week and then Newcastle for a tough run of matches. I think the pick of the games this week are Chelsea against Palace where Aiden Hazard will probably be back so he's a great captaincy option. Man City playing Southampton. Sergio Aguero only seems to be playing about 65-70 minutes so far this season but he could easily score a couple against Southampton. And then there's Arsenal-Liverpool. Arsenal's defence just looks so shaky and Liverpool's attack at the moment just looks so good. I would be yeah, packing a team with Liverpool attacking players if if you haven't got Salah or Mane I think you definitely need one of those and they are great captaincy options too don't forget you can sign up for the sweeper at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football we've also got a Facebook group which if you just search for the sweeper and you can get mine and Paddy's advice about your teams and any potential transfers you might be making good luck in game week 11 It is time now for our weekly predictions game, Gab. A reminder that last weekend I took the lead for the first time this season. I came back. I mean, you had a big lead, but I've, I've come back now. It's 5-4 to me at the moment. Absolutely, but I predict it's not going to stay that way because this is the week <laughs> I, I'm going to stake my claim. Arsenal and Liverpool, we talked about it uh, further up. Um, I think Arsenal tripped them up. I'm going to say oh. Arsenal... Two Liverpool won. Oh, really? Do you know, I know we're just focusing on one game, but this week, the games that we've come up for uh, to talk about prediction-wise, I, I really struggled. I really thought this was quite a hard week to pick uh, a winner as, as such. So anyway, the game at the Emirates, I'm going for a 2-2 draw. I think it's going to be a thriller. Well, yeah. Thriller at uh, the Emirates. Uh, yes. Wolves and Tottenham. Now, yeah. again, another game that we talked about. What do you say there? I'm going to say that both teams are going to score, but I think Spurs are going to win. I'm going for a 2-1 Spurs win. Mm. Oh, don't make that face. Wolves are tight. Wolves are tight. Um, magic of Molyneux. I'm going to yeah. go for a 1-1 draw. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Everton. Um, yes. And Brighton, Brighton. Your man, Marco Silva, as you like to tell us. Versus my other man, Chris <laughs> Hewton. Men in my life. Um, Brighton. 
fresh off three straight 1-0 victories. Yes. I'd love to say they're going to make it four. I don't think they will. Everton 2, Brighton 0. Oh, I've gone for an Everton win, but I've just gone for a 1-0 win. Then we move into the Championship. It's Nottingham Forest against Sheffield United. Any ideas on this one, Gap? <laughs> you're grimacing. I don't think you're happy with this one. You get to go first on this okay. prediction. So. I, I was struggling with this one. I, I, it's Nottingham Forest. It's Ito Cranker, isn't it? It's never a joy. Um, Poor guy. I know, but it's just, you know, it's just not very entertaining from when, when I've seen Forest anyway. Um, Sheffield United going really well. I am going to go for one or draw, though. I think it'd be tight. I'm going to give Aitor a little bit more love and say 2-0 <laughs> to Forrest. Ooh, okay. Very interesting. And over in Serie A, yes. we have the young guns at Fiorentina who are slowing down a little bit mm. against the Roma team who were dreadful but got a great result last week away to Napoli. 1-1. I think this is when uh, the young guns come good. The, uh, for, for those who don't know, a little fun fact about Fiorentina, mm-hmm. their two strikers are two very young, very exciting strikers who both had dads who were far better footballers, at least for now, than they were. And they are, Gearbrandt? The sons or the fathers? Well, just say the last names. Chiesa and Simeone. Very good. Ah. So, yes. Uh, Federico Chiesa and Giovanni Simeone, of course. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go Fiorentina 2, Roma nil. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Uh, obviously, Syria, not my bag at all. I'm going for a Roma win, though. I just... Plucked it out of nowhere. 2-1 win for Roma. That's very encouraging. You're so scientific <laughs> with your predictions. Anyway, we'll see. I think it's time to pull even. I want, I want Natalie to get a little big-headed after four straight victories. <laughs> Just time to give you the answer to Bill Edgar's trivia teaser. Just to remind you that question was in the championship at the weekend, Derby, Forrest and Middlesbrough each fielded a player who also played for them 15 years ago. Since then, all three have appeared for England and played for one of the Premier League's big six clubs before returning to their first side. Now, you haven't cheated, have you, James? Haven't cheated. Okay, I'm pretty sure about one, possibly two... Um, the, the two that no. I could have got, but one I... Oh, I dar- it's the Derby I don't, I don't know who plays for Nottingham Forest. I have no idea. I, I'll say Michael Dawson. Does he, Does he play it? for... Oh. I, would, I would have gone for Michael Dawson. All right. Then Derby would be Tom Huddleston, yes. Oh. All right. So the middle one is Stuart Downing. Stuart Downing. Stuart Downing. There you go. Oh, that good. Ha! You said you could fool us, Bill Edgar, but you cannot. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Huddleston for Derby, Michael Dawson for Forest, and Stuart Downing for Middlesbrough. Well done. That's all we've got time for today. Many thanks to our excellent guests, James Gearbrandt, and talking to us while eating his porridge in his pajamas, Jonathan Northcroft. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. It's just a pound a week for an eight-week trial, which, as we established, if you have a full eight-week trial, it will cost you how much, Natalie? Eight pounds. Eight pounds. Just eight pounds. Eight pounds. And we'll be back on Monday after a big Premier League weekend and we'll be looking ahead to a huge week in the Champions League. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. 
Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.